Recently, I was riding the train home from New York City, and I got talking to the woman who was sitting across from me. When I found out she lived in Lexington, I said, oh, I work in Lexington. And she said, oh, what do you do? <laughs> Always a tricky question. <laughs> People can get a little weird. But without flinching, I said, I'm one of the pastors at Grace Chapel right in town. She said, oh, I know Grace Chapel. That's the place we all avoid because of the traffic. <laughs> yeah, that's us, I said. Now, thankfully, the conversation didn't end there because she wanted to know what kind of church Grace Chapel was. So I talked about the vitality and energy of our worship services. I talked about the diversity of our congregation, about how welcoming the atmosphere is, about all our activity in the community, in the city, in the world. But in all of that, there was one word I didn't use to describe Grace Chapel, even though it's a word I've used many, many, many times to describe our church. But for some reason this time, it got stuck in my throat. I couldn't quite bring myself to say it. It's the word evangelical. Now, just to bring you up to speed, evangelical is the word that historically, for a long time now, has described Christians from a variety of traditions who have several beliefs in common, who claim to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, who believe that Christ's death on the cross accomplished our salvation, people who believe the Bible to be God's word, and people who are eager to share their faith with others. It's based on the Greek word euangelion, which basically means good news. And so evangelicals are supposed to be good news people, people who believe and share the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for many years, I've been very comfortable describing myself and the churches I've served as evangelical. But in recent years, I've been finding myself less and less comfortable with that label for a couple of reasons. In part, because of the political baggage that has become attached to that word. Political baggage that has very little, if anything, to do with the good news that we actually believe and want to share and political baggage that doesn't accurately represent the broad spectrum of people who believe and live that gospel. I was at the gym some time ago, and the news was on. A bunch of people were watching the news as we did our thing, and uh, some self-appointed spokesperson was going on and on about what evangelicals think. And after a while, I couldn't stand it anymore, and I literally blurted out loud, I'm one of them, and he doesn't speak for me. I just wasn't comfortable. But in addition to the political baggage, there is also the negative connotations that word has come to carry in our culture. We've talked before about surveys that suggest that many people perceive Christian people to be mean-spirited, narrow-minded, judgmental, bigoted even, and, and hateful. Now, we could get into a long debate as to how widespread those perceptions are, how deserving those descriptions are, but it doesn't change the fact that that is how we are widely perceived and portrayed in our culture. And all this to say, then, that after a lifetime of loyalty to that word evangelical, I may have reached a tipping point on the train that day when I'm just not sure I want to be associated with what that word has come to mean in our culture, much as I 
align myself with the root meanings and tradition of the word. I'm just not sure it's helping us anymore. If Christ followers have any hope of bringing good news to our world, we need an extreme makeover. Somehow we have to become very different people from the kinds of people we are perceived to be. This fall, we are considering the divine invitation to join hands with God as he goes about his saving, healing, transforming work in the world. It's an invitation as old as creation itself when God extended the hand of friendship and partnership to that first man and woman made in his image and he authorized them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, let's do it together. But human beings have shown down through the ages again and again that we have been unable to keep up that friendship, unable to fulfill that partnership. And so after many, many, many generations, God himself came down in the person of his son, Jesus, to actually be with us in this world and to go with us as we carry on his work. And so that's our theme for ministry and our vision for this year, being and going with Jesus. That's the divine invitation. And that's what our year is going to be all about. So last week we learned that we are invited to grow as we go with Jesus. We learned that mission isn't something that comes second after we're discipled. We learned that they both happen at the same time. We're going to grow as we go just like the disciples did. From the very beginning, Jesus pushed them out into the world and they grew as they went with Jesus. And so we're, we'll be learning how to do that throughout this year. In fact, we've designed a, a, a new learning experience here at Grace that we're really excited about. We're calling it simply the Go Course. Think of it as kind of a sequel to the Roots Course that many of us have experienced here in the past few years. In fact, it's patterned after the Roots Course in the sense that there are some daily Bible readings we do on our own, a little bit of upfront teaching, and a small group experience. A team of people spent the better part of last year designing and piloting this particular experience, and it is ready for release this fall. It's designed to help you find your go and live your go. Listen to some of the topics it'll be covering. Neighboring well. Faith at work. God's heart for justice. And how to find your go. So we're hoping, we're praying in the years to come that hundreds of us, thousands of us will experience this Go course. So it's launching next week. Be watching for it on your campus this fall. But this week here in our Sunday teaching, we're going to be focusing on how we can become the kind of people who can actually bring good news. How can we overcome these negative stereotypes? How can we become people who are famous for more than traffic jams on a Sunday? All right. So once again, we're going to turn to the words of Jesus. We're working out of the Gospels of Matthew and Mark in particular this fall. And today we're going to turn to some of the most challenging words Jesus ever spoke. They come to us in Matthew chapter 5, the opening section of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. 
And as we prepare to hear these words and process them, I'm going I'm to suggest that we just listen to them first, as, as Jesus' original hearers might have experienced them. Now, we've done this before. We've done it before with the Sermon on the Mount. But there's, there's something about hearing it all at once, out loud. I want us to hear and feel the impact of this teaching, and then we'll come take a closer look. Matthew tells us that in the opening of chapter 5 that when Jesus saw the crowd, he went up on a hill on the hillside. His disciples came to him and he began to teach. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, because they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you're insulted and persecuted, when people falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who came long before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill can't be hidden, and neither does anyone light a lamp and then put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before people that they see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to complete them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth pass away, not the, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything has been accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices these things and teaches others to do the same will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I tell you the truth. Unless your righteousness is better than that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard that it was said to people a long time ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I say to you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister is guilty of judgment, is worthy of judgment. And anyone who says to someone else, you fool, is in danger of the fires of hell. 
So if you're offering your gift at the altar and then remember that someone has something against you, leave your gift at the altar. First go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with an adversary. Settle them while you're, you're still together on the way to court. Otherwise, he might hand you over to the judge who will hand you over to the jailer and you won't get out until you paid the last penny. Again, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, any man who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If, if your right eye causes you, to, causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole self to go into hell. You've heard that it was said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. I say to you, anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness makes her a victim of adultery. Anyone who, anyone who marries a divorced woman himself becomes guilty of adultery because again, marriage vows have been broken. You've heard that it was said to people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill the vows you've made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear an oath at all. Not by heaven, because it's God's throne. Not by earth, because it's his footstool. Not by Jerusalem, it's the city of the great king. Don't even swear by your own head, because you can't make one hair black or white. Just let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Anything more than that comes from the evil one. It's been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I say to you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone sues you for your shirt, give them your coat as well. If they force you to walk one mile, Go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not hold back from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that they may become children of your heavenly father. Because if you love only those who love you, what reward will you get? Even tax collectors do that. And if you greet only those who greet you, what have you done more than anyone else? Even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. These are the words of the Lord. Amen. Now, we would all agree, I think, once again, these are some of the most profound and challenging words that have ever been spoken by anyone in any context. So challenging that people have struggled down through the centuries as to how to actually interpret this teaching. So a few ideas have been suggested. Some people have said that what we have here is a new legalism. 
that Jesus has taken the Old Testament law with all his de- its demands and, and actually raised the bar. Giving us more rules to follow. Making it even harder to earn God's approval and win our way into the kingdom. Some people, in fact, have gouged out an eye in a futile attempt to live up to this new legalism. Others have said, no, no, no. This, this has to be understood as an impossible standard. I mean, Jesus never really expected anyone to keep all these commandments. I mean, if anger is the same as murder and lust is the same as adultery, we're all in trouble. Jesus was just kind of exaggerating to make the point. He wants to reveal our inadequacy and our, our need for a savior that even, even the most spiritual person like a Pharisee can't work their way in. Others have said, no, 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 no. This has to be understood as a temporary ethic. Jesus is asking his disciples to live this way for the time that he's on the earth with them. To kind of show what life could be like, what it would be like in the kingdom. But once humanity rejected that kingdom... Well, then the whole thing got put on hold until Christ comes again. I mean, anyone can see this kind of thing is not practical in a fallen world. You go turning the cheek at work, you'll never get anywhere. So is it a new legalism? Is it it an impossible standard Jesus never expected us to keep? Is it a temporary ethic that doesn't apply today? None of those are very satisfying, are they? Now, I, I believe, I think we have to believe that That Jesus, what he's offering here, is simply a better way. A better way of living. A better way of being human. Now, there's a measure of truth to all these other views. Jesus has raised the bar in the Sermon on the Mount. But he never expected us to clear that bar in our own strength. He came here to coach us and to help us. And yes, it is an impossible standard. It does reveal our inadequacy and need of a Savior. But the good news is Jesus is that Savior. And he's ready to forgive us and actually free us to start living this way. And yes, it is the way of the kingdom. And it is countercultural in our world today. But it's a way that can actually be lived now with Christ's help. This is a better way. Because it's lived from the inside out. It's not a matter of trying in our own strength to live up to an ever more challenging set of standards. No, this is about the freedom to finally become the people we were meant to be in the first place and to live the kinds of lives Jesus had in mind when he put us here on this planet. To become people who actually reflect the image of God. People whose lives are actually good for the world. When Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, he's not calling for a higher degree of righteousness. He's calling for a different kind of righteousness. A brand new way of being right with God and others and yourself. He's talking about a righteousness that comes from within, that flows from the very heart of God, and that blesses everyone who comes in contact with it. A better way. 
Now, some years ago, I had a chance to travel to the Holy Land on an interfaith clergy tour. So there were about 12 or 15 of us, a few Protestant ministers, a few Roman Catholics, and a handful of conservative rabbis. I know there's a joke in there somewhere, but we'll just keep on moving, okay? And as we went from site to site, different ones of us had a chance to teach at the particular site we were visiting. And I happened to be invited to teach uh, when we went to the Mount of Beatitudes, the traditional site where Jesus delivered this so-called Sermon on the Mount. So when we arrived at that site, I decided that I would just recite the Sermon on the Mount, much like I just did for you. So I I invited them all, the clergy, to kind of take their seat on the hillside, and, and I just shared the words with them. Now, it's a little more developed than it shows in this picture. So we're sitting uh, outside the church that's there on that site, but this is the view from this location. And so I recited the Sermon on the Mount. Now, as you can imagine, these words are familiar to a bunch of clergy. Even the rabbis in the crowd, no doubt, were familiar with these teachings and had probably studied them. But there's something about hearing them out loud all at once, especially in a place like that, that's especially powerful. And afterwards, one by one, they came to me. And in one way or another, they said to me, that was beautiful. Now, they weren't saying the recitation was beautiful because it wasn't. I goofed a few lines. They were saying the words were beautiful. The images Jesus evoked were beautiful. The the behaviors Jesus called for are beautiful. The relationships he described are beautiful. It's not just a beautiful sermon. It's a beautiful life that Jesus is inviting us into. It's the life that we want to live. And it's a life that we can live. That's the good news in relationship with Christ. And just so there's no doubt in our minds that Jesus actually expects us to live this way, just look at a couple of verses tucked away early in this sermon. These verses come in chapter 5, just after the Beatitudes. Jesus has identified these qualities, these inner qualities of a Christ-following person. And then he goes on to describe two metaphors that help us imagine the kind of impact we can have if we live these words out. He says, verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now, salt served two purposes in the ancient world, as we know. It was a flavor enhancer and it was a preservative. In other words, it made things taste better and last longer. And it still does. Who wants fries or corn on the cob without salt? It just makes things taste better. And Jesus is saying our lives should have the same effect on the world around us. That our presence, our behavior, our language, our ways of relating to people should should be so beneficial, so enhancing that our homes and our workplaces and our schools and our neighborhoods become happier and healthier simply because we are sprinkled there. Imagine life at home 
without destructive anger or abusive language. Imagine friendship, how deep friendship could be if we never let any unresolved hurts fester. Imagine how unencumbered our relationships with men and women would be if they weren't spoiled by lust and by exploitation. Imagine how satisfying a marriage becomes when you only have eyes for your spouse. Imagine how productive your workplace could be if people let their yes mean yes and their no mean no. Imagine our political climate today if people turned the other cheek instead of striking back. Imagine race relations today if we intentionally welcomed into our circle people who were different from us. Friends, this is a beautiful way to live. It's the way God designed us to live. And notice there's, there's nothing here about telling other people how they should live, which unfortunately we are way too preoccupied with. There's nothing here about telling other people how they should be living. This is all about us living in ways that are actually good and pleasing and beautiful for the people around us. He's inviting us into lives that make life better, tastier, healthier, longer lasting for everyone around us. Imagine how the public perception of Christians would change if we were to be these kinds of people. Well, then Jesus goes on to offer a second metaphor to help us picture the impact we can have. He says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. If salt makes things taste better and last longer, light makes things easier to understand and to navigate. In other words, light shows us the way. Now, we live right over here in Bedford, and one of the things we like about where we live is that we can walk to Bedford Farms, which has the best moose tracks on the planet. <laughs> and so it's become kind of a family tradition for us. Whenever everybody's home, we always go for a walk to Bedford Farms. Now, to get there from our house, you have to pass through this small vacant lot and a little stretch of woods. And we're usually making the walk at night, and so the kids often get a little bit scared and uncomfortable. And there are rocks and roots that stumble, that we stumble over and that slow us down, make us a little bit tentative and distract us from our conversation. So inevitably, someone either asks for or brings out a phone to, to kind of light the way. That's what Jesus is saying our lives are like. They light the way for people. They show them how to get from here to there. They... They take away our fears. They, they keep people from stumbling. They, they keep them focused on things that are really important. And, and these lights, this light helps people get to a better place, not just ice cream, but to the kingdom of God. 
But if that light is going to be effective, Jesus says, it has to shine. It has to be visible. It has to be shining in the dark places of this world and in the places where people live their everyday lives. Which, of course, is why Jesus tells us to go. Get out. Get out of the church. Get out of the holy huddle. And be where people really live. Be where darkness is, is, is having an effect and shine your light there in those places. If, if we spend all our time in the church world and not enough in the real world, it's like hiding our light under a bowl. If we spend so much energy caring for our own souls that we have nothing left to care for the souls of those who might be lost or stumbling, we're not letting our light shine. Now the good news is whenever I bump into somebody in Lexington or any town who actually knows someone who goes to Grace Chapel, they always think very favorably about our church. It's about more than the traffic. But you see, they have to know somebody. They have to have seen somebody live, work, play, relate in order for them to get the picture. And so Jesus says, in the same way, let your light so shine before people that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now notice again, there's very little talking here. It's mostly showing. And so Jesus is inviting us into a new way of living, a new way of being human, a way that's so distinctive, so beautiful, so transformative that it's actually good for the world around us. And so that's the divine invitation this week. We are invited to be good news before we speak good news. To be good news before we speak good news. Now, to be sure, there's a time for speaking good news, and we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. But if we ever hope to change the public perception, if we ever hope to gain a hearing from people, it's going to begin with the kind of lives we live and the kind of people we actually are. We have to become good news people. Just a couple of weeks ago, Karen and I caught up with a film little indie film that came out a couple years ago, I think, but we just happened to catch it uh, at home. It's called The Hollers. Okay, it was written and produced by John Krasinski of The Office fame. And we meet the Holler family right from the get-go. Mother, father, two adult sons. And we meet them just after they learn that the mother has a brain tumor. So most of the film is about how they deal with that, and, and the way it exposes and heals rifts in their relationship. But there's this interesting little subplot involving the older son, Ron, who's, who's pretty much made a mess of things. Drinking too much, divorcing his wife, losing touch with his kids. He has this terrible habit of stalking his ex-wife and the kids, watching them through binoculars from the car and creeping them out. At one point, we meet, and Ron meets his ex-wife's new boyfriend, Reverend Dan, <laughs> the youth pastor from the local church. Now, right away along with you, I go, all right, here it comes. 
the usual Hollywood stereotype of the, of the youth pastor or the evangelical Christian. He's going to be an obnoxious, self-righteous boor who's no fun to be around and is always trying to convert everybody. I just braced myself. And to my surprise, he was this likable, reasonable guy who was actually very, very gracious to Ron in spite of his weirdness and his hostility. Well, later on in the film, Ron actually sneaks into his ex-wife's house in the middle of the night because he wants to see his kids. Well, she, of course, gets scared to death, so she calls the cops, who put, in put him in handcuffs and lead him away out in front of the whole neighborhood. So he's humiliated and obviously in a lot of trouble. Right about that time, just as they're putting him into the squad car, Reverend Dan shows up. And he talks to Ron and, and, and says, hey, do you want to go, you want to go talk about things? No, 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 I'm good, I'm good, Ron says. But Reverend Dan won't give up. He grabs one of the officers and, and has them take the cuffs off Ron and let him go. Wait, what are you doing? Ron says. And Reverend Dan says, let's go get some coffee. Ron seems relieved for a moment. Then he goes, wait, you're not going to push any of that Jesus stuff on me, are you? <laughs> and Reverend Dan says, no, Ron, I never push my beliefs on anyone. You promise, Ron says. I promise, says Reverend Dan. Good, says Ron. And then after a pause, Ron says, by the way, what are your beliefs? <laughs> and at that moment, I stopped the film. Scared Karen to death. That's it. <laughs> That's who we're supposed to be. Why can't we be like that? Why aren't we famous for how kind and loving and surprisingly gracious we are? By the way, what are your beliefs? That's what Jesus is talking about here. Lives so beautiful, they can't help but capture people's imaginations. By the way, why are you always so kind and helpful? By the way, do you always tell the truth? By the way, how can you forgive her after what she did to you? By the way, what's with you and your wife? You seem to have such a great relationship. By the way, why do you always let other people take the credit? By the way, why have you not given up on me? Friends, this is the life that Jesus invites us to live. Why can't we be famous for that? Why can't the stereotype of evangelicals be that we are kind, gracious, honest, hardworking, gracious people who are surprisingly fun to be around? and who give of themselves sacrificially to the needs of the world? Why can't we be famous for the good we do in town instead of for the traffic that we cause? Friends, I honestly believe 
that we have a very small window of opportunity left to get this right. To, to earn the right to be heard. To capture their imagination with the goodness of the gospel. I honestly believe the future of the church, of our witness in this world, is based on our capacity, our ability to love people and to live beautifully. So we can't waste another day. It's time to embrace this divine invitation to be good news before we speak good news. Now I realize this probably raises all kinds of questions. Like, how do we actually become these kinds of people? I mean, this is something else Jesus calls us to. I'm glad you asked. We'll talk about it next week. <laughs> and what happens if I am such good news that people ask me what my beliefs are? What do I say? What exactly is the gospel? We'll talk about that in a few weeks. So you're just going to have to keep on coming. <laughs> but for today, let me leave you with just this question. Are you... Are you a good news person? Are people glad when they see you coming? Are people thrilled to have you on their team, on the athletic field or in the office? Are you famous in your neighborhood for how often you go to church? or for what, a, for what a great person you are to live next door to. Jesus said, what are we doing more than these? I don't think he meant, I don't think he was talking about more church going. I don't think he was talking about more Bible study, as important as those things can be. I think he was talking about more love about more beauty, about more life that is truly life. And he invites us into it. Let's pray. Well, we thank you for these remarkably powerful words of yours, inspired by the Holy Spirit, spoken by our Lord himself, preserved by the sovereign hand of God, so that we hear them and even feel them today. Thank you for the picture they paint, for the life they invite us into. Thank you, Lord, that you don't leave us on our own, but that you're here to be with us and to help us become this kind, these kinds of people and to lead these kinds of lives. Lord, we pray, we pray that in the days to come, you would do such a work in our hearts, not just here in our own church, but in your churches across the country and across the world, that we might become known as people who are full of joy, who love God, and are good for the world. In Jesus' name, amen.